morning. I'm excited. This is Global Outreach Weekend. It reminds me of going back to when I was a little kid. When I was a kid, I always loved Global Outreach Weekend. I'll tell you why. Because the weekend would start, we'd do something really cool, like we would have that food packing that's going out to Tanzania, and it would be an opportunity for me as a kid to just really give my heart and watch it go to practical use around the world. That was always great. It was good for my heart. And then I'd show up on Sunday, and Sunday school, we would learn about a different culture, a culture that I did not know too much about, and I would go deeper, and I was just fascinated by the diversity of God's creation and people. But there was always kind of a little bit of a downside for me as a kid, because what would happen, what would be kind of the next thing, we would come into the auditorium, and the senior pastor would always end up giving the pulpit to a missionary, right? And what would happen with this missionary would beat us up, beat me up and say, you know what, come on, George, step it up a notch, really get out there, talk about concepts and ideas that were over my head. And not only would this missionary do that, but this missionary had no respect for time and would do it in 30 minutes over what uh, we were supposed to do. (laughs) And quite frankly, for me as a kid listening to all this and in this context, I found it boring, right? So here I am. Yeah? (laughs) So I do have um, the honor uh, to report back to you. I just got back, quite literally, from Ethiopia. It's my great privilege to tell you that there are Ethiopians this day coming and worshiping and saying, God, you are my God. I want nothing but you. You are my future, past. You're my everything. It was an honor to be part of that. We went on a short-term trip. There are still people over there. They're traveling back uh, today, so if you remember them, uh, you can pray for them. Uh, and their travels. These are some pictures. And this church is called uh, the Gotera Church. I've seen their heart. I've seen how they love. And I'll tell you, I know that they are disciples of Jesus because of their love. I got to have communion with them on that Sunday, and one of the elders got up there, and as he was leading us in communion, he just said, you know what, I have to confess something. This last week, I had three meals a day, every day, while some of my brothers and sisters did not have that opportunity. So this next week, I'm not going to have three meals a day. I'm going to give one of my meals to someone in a community. And that really just touched my heart. They're living in a place that's very poor. They strategically... Oh, did you guys see that? There he is, Mr. Borland. Yep, that guy. They're living in a place they strategically put their church in the poorest of the poor. And they really have a heart for reaching out to their community. And I was over there. It just really struck me that we have a lot to learn from our Ethiopian brothers and sisters. Ethiopia is a unique country. They're surrounded by war. They have different beliefs in their country. They have Orthodox, Evangelicals. They have Muslims. And they're all kind of getting along. They're one of the countries that was never colonized. It's a unique place. And I think there's some stuff that we can learn from them. They have this ministry with women, and it's a compassion ministry, and they're reaching out. And within this last year, they had seven Muslims come to faith in Jesus Christ, and that's just awesome. It's a community of 300, 300 believers. And you want to talk about capacity, the things that they're doing? 300 believers are reaching out to 350 kids in that neighborhood, the poorest of the poor, giving them meals, giving, helping them with education, supplement some of their education, And it's just, it's amazing, the things that they're doing. From 
I want to share with you some data from the Joshua Project. Joshua Project goes around, they analyze uh, things around the world. 74,000 people a day come to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior around the world. That's awesome. God is moving. An average of 300 or 3,500 churches are planted every week. God is moving. Things are going awesomely. We have the opportunity to step into some of this. There's another thing. From 1990 until today, the number of evangelical Christians around the world has doubled. Can you believe it? It's great. I got to see some of this firsthand. Dick Augustine works with Community Bible Study, which is championed by Maury Kapsner and Dick Augustine. They were over there this last Thursday. Dick preached to Ethiopian believers. They came in. There was 2,500 of them that came all committed to the gospel, to the word of God, because they say we need the word of God, we need that foundation in our lives. And then we have this partnership with Friends of Africa. We just packed meals yesterday that are going to people that we know. Rural Nygaard has championed this. This is all stuff that's happening in YZ. God is moving in YZ and through YZ, and it's amazing. It's cool. You want your God to get bigger? Here's an easy way. Find someone different than you. Find a believer from a different culture, and as you meet and you start talking, what happens? You start to learn. Your God gets bigger. You want your God to get bigger? Find someone different than you, maybe a non-believer. And as you step into their lives and you start loving with them, loving them, you find out that anything's possible. God gets bigger because you're going to be put in context where you don't necessarily know the answer, and God shows up in that. So we want to put this in context. Because what's the sermon series that we're in right now? What? Take the next step. Remember, I'm in no hurry, right? I'm the missionary that's going to go 30 minutes over. Okay? What's the kind of culture that we want to create at Wyzetta? Oh, did you guys catch that? Take the next step. That's a sermon series just for everybody. What's the culture, kind of culture we want to create? Nobody's perfect. Everybody's welcome. Anything's possible with God. And we're coming up. Kevin has taken us through faith and hope, and today is love. So let's put this in context. When we talk about love, a lot of different people have a lot of different ideas about love. It's been kind of the one concept that we've been striving for to understand since the beginning. It's been the quest, right? We would have little poetry Few songs if it wasn't for this theme of love. Everybody's trying to get their head around it. But what we want to do this morning is come up with kind of a working definition based on what we see Jesus' definition of love is. And if we step into that, how anything is possible with God's love as we love one another and love the world and step out. So let's break it down. It struck me, going back to Jesus, When Jesus talks about love, his last prayer in John 17 is really quite beautiful. And he's talking about love, and he's praying for unity. He's praying for protection, for unity of believers. And when we get together in that community and we're loving each other with God's love, something really quite amazing happens. Anything is possible. So I wanted to look at John this morning because John is often called the disciple of love. He's written some of the most famous things about love. John 3.16, right? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's kind of the verse that we're known for as Christians. It's a verse about love, the ultimate love. But what I want to do is go to 1 John 3, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from life to death because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is, right? There's a colon. He's getting ready to tell us right now what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but does not have pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. So I think a lot in our culture, when we talk about love, we talk about it as a feeling quite a bit, right? It's an emotion. We're all searching for that kind of true, real love, but we limit it to emotion. Even we say love a lot. I love you, I love you. But when we look at this kind of context in 1 John 3, what I see is to see something a little bit deeper than that. You see it right there. It's an action. Love is an action. It's not just something that we say. It's not just something that we do. And John further develops this idea in 1 John 4, 7 through 11. He says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, but because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. Okay? Now, specifically, he's going to tell us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our, friends, for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we ought to love one another. Based on what we find here in 1 John, I think there's a definition of love that we can come up with. Okay, It's an action, but it's more than just an action. I think what we see here, we talk about God, it's a giving, right? It's a giving. But it's not just giving something arbitrarily. It's giving something of yourself. It's giving something precious. It's giving something very personal. God gave his son. Jesus gave his life. So love is giving of yourself. And when I think about that, and I put it in this context, I think about some of our Ethiopian brothers and sisters and some of the stuff that's happened in Africa. And I think about the Coptic Christians that lost their lives for their faith. And I think about, would I be able to do that in that situation, in that context? And I think my love for God, my love for Jesus, that I would be able to give my life for my faith. And I think about it deeper. I think about love and community Love and family. I would give my life for the people that I love, for my family, 
But there's always kind of that thing that's in me. Would I give every part of my life to Christ? Because I think we in the West compartmentalize things a lot. We give God some of this and some of that, but not the whole thing. And there's always been a passage in the Bible that's been very troubling for me. And it's Genesis 22, where God tests Abraham and asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And I think about that as a parent, if I could do that. And some of this has hit home. I've gotten glimpses of who I am because kids are the most important thing. Georgia and Joseph are the most important things to me. And I remember one time I came home from work in in Mongolia, and I came through the door, and Terry was kind of being a little timid, and I was like, what's going on? And she's like, well, Georgia doesn't want you to see her. So I went back, and I was like, Georgia, what's going on? And she said, Daddy, I don't want you to see my black eye. Georgia came home from school with a black eye. And I have to admit, I have to confess that seeing that, my baby girl with a black eye, for the next three hours of that day, I was not really a Christian, yeah? But I got it back. I got it back through grace, yeah? (laughs) God help me, yeah? I got it back. And I think that experience more than anything helped me understand Genesis 22 a little bit. I'm a father. I love my kids. And I understand John 3.16. For God so loved the world, they gave his one and only son. I understand. I get a glimpse of the sacrifice, and I'm grateful. Because I see how much God loved me. I'm grateful. The whole point of everything, the whole point of the gospel, the thing that drives me is how do I take this love and make it applicable for today? How does it go into next week? So I think about love and community, and I think about sacrifice and selfless love, unity, humility, all loving, like that, in community. And I think we can add to that definition. I think love is giving of yourself for the good of others. Yeah? What do you think about that? I think that's a pretty good definition, right? We could definitely write a poem about that, and maybe a good love song might break the top ten. That's a good definition, right? Is that complete, though? Love is giving of yourself for the good of others. As I look at 1 John, I think that we need to add to this definition. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The remarkable thing about God's love is that it extends to people who are not even interested in him. Because the truth is, you look at the beginning of history and you look at humanity, where one kind of thing that's been common throughout all of history is that we want to do it on our own. We constantly, consistently turn our back on God. From Adam and Eve all the way to now, we have rejected God. But God came looking for us. And when he found us, he laid down his life for us. And he did it in the midst of us sinning against him. So, added to the definition of this 
working definition. Love is giving of yourself for the good of others, even for those who have no interest in you. Because the point is, I don't think we get to choose who we love. We're not called only to love people that are like us, yeah? Who agree with us or who even ask for our love. We're called to love those who are different from us, who disagree with us, who show no interest in us at all. That's a little bit more difficult, right? It's all easy to love someone who's like you, right? I have to tell you, it would be a lot easier for me to love you guys if you were more like me, okay? That's the truth, right? We love people who think and act like us. That's really quite ordinary. To step out and love someone who's different, you're moving out, that's a little harder, but to love someone who has no interest and is moving away from you, that is something beyond us, I think. So what does love look like? Let's go back in 1 John to the beginning, okay? 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is shining. Now we have that in verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command. What's he but an old one? What's he talking about there? Any of you familiar with Cliff Notes? Yeah, I saw a few, few honest people raise their hands, right? You showed up to university and you were so excited to enter into that English Lit class because you wanted to read... And what happened? You had a professor that was just enthralled with the authenticity of Jane Austen. And you were in. You were in. And you read the first Pride and Prejudice book, right? And you thought that was pretty cool. But then Jane Austen is so authentic that your professor took you on to Sense and Sensibility. Yeah, you're okay. You read that too. It was all right. But by the time you got to Persuasion, you were like, Professor, there are other authors in the English literature, right? And so maybe, just maybe, you read the Cliff Notes instead. Yeah? You can be honest. Or maybe that was me. I don't know. But what we got here, I think, is something that we can relate to the larger community. When we talk about things that uh, we fight about in Christianity, a lot of it is because we spend time reading the cliff notes and not going back to the gospel. First John, and we're going to look at it, this chapter 2 and verse 7, is a commentary on the things that he's written in the gospel. Paul writes the epistles because he's explaining the gospel. It's commentary on the gospel, and everything is rooted back in the gospel. The reason why the tough passage, Genesis 22, makes sense is because it's in context with the gospel. So that's what I want to do. 1 John is an excellent commentary, but what is it a commentary of? What is this old commandment that he's talking about? Well, it goes right back to John chapter 13. This is what John is doing. He's expanding on this idea that we see in John 13, the very end. 13.34. This is the command. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. He's giving us this in 1 John. He's expanding on it. It's the greatest commandment. Jesus is telling us practically, every day, how we're to live. 
Well, let's put this in context because there's a whole chapter that leads up to this. So in John 13, where are we? Actually, the setting is quite gloomy, yeah? We're in the upper room in a first century house in Palestine. The night before Jesus died, and it seems like a strange place to learn how to love and live together in community in this world and for the world, but this is where we get this profound lesson in love. John makes this point clear to us, yeah? What are we to do and how are we to do it? He makes it really clear because if you look at John 13 and verse 15, he says this. I have set, Jesus says this, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. So this whole point that we're building up to, Jesus gives us this example. You want to love each other the way I loved you so that the world knows that you are my disciples. I gave you an example. What's the example? It's in John 1, beginning, or John 13, beginning with verse 1. Okay? John 13, 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and they had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then skip down to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to that place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, no messenger greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. A clear example, and if we do this, we will love one another as he's loved us. Jesus says that his humility is an example for us, that we do as he did. We identify with our Savior, and there's something profound here. We show ourselves to be his disciples by humbling ourselves and seek the good of others at our own expense. Because there is a degree of suffering when we go out and we're actively looking to serve others. It costs something to seek someone else's good. There will be times when it feels like we're not being encouraged, like we're investing in someone and they're not really going the way that we want. And I think our natural tendency is when we see that to turn and run and give up. But I don't think that's what we get from John 13. When serving gets especially tough, I don't think we necessarily serve less, but perhaps more. In doing that, I think we have an opportunity to go deeper with Jesus. It redefines our relationships. Where the world has the status 
this rank, and we say, okay, this is the kind of person that is better than this other person. What do we see here in John 13? Who is washing the feet? Our Lord and teacher has humbled himself. It's calling us to not be picky, to not choose who we love, but still be in ordinary people's lives and do it with humility. I want to consider the context of John 13. Look at the group that's sitting around him because John is really sure to tell us. He tells us explicitly that Judas is in the process of betraying Jesus. Peter, who says, I will never deny you. I will die with you before that happens. I will never. Peter ends up denying. John wants us to get the timing of this scene really clear in our head. It's before the Feast of Passover. Jesus knew they was about to depart from this world. Judas is already conniving to betray him. He understood, Jesus understood that the Father has given him all authority. We see that in the first couple of verses. His ministry, his earthly ministry is almost finished. We are supposed to understand this context when we get to John, 1, John 13, 1 through 3. This is the context in which he serves. Here in this final scene, he washes the disciples' feet. Hours from now, he's going to be in Gethsemane. He will be arrested, he'll be betrayed with a kiss, and everyone that said that they love him so dearly, everyone that says, I promise I'll be with you no matter what, they all scatter. So a new definition, working definition. Love is giving of yourself in humility for the good of others, for those who deny and even betray you. Jesus knows this as he's washing the feet. But it goes further than this, and I want to jump to John 15, because we need to add something to this too. John 15, verse 18. Jesus is still talking here. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would have loved you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, right? Just a little earlier. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So maybe a definition that we have to add a little bit to our working definition is love is giving of yourself in humility for the good of others, even for those who deny and betray you and even hate you. We have to ask ourselves, is this kind of love even possible, right? It's one thing to be kind of words and talking about and ideas, but is this really practical? Can we live this out? I think there's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Because remember when I told you every day there are 74,000 people around the world, new believers, coming to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? 97% of the people that are coming to Christ every day are from the south and east meaning that in the West, 3% are coming to Jesus Christ every day. And we at least have to ask ourselves the question, why? And maybe I'll speak just for myself. Sometimes I think being a Westerner, coming up in an individualistic society, that's part of our culture, I think about me a lot. 
I talk about I a lot. I did this. And I think it doesn't help that the West is rich. I think the material kind of feeds into that. And it's an idol that I don't even necessarily know is going on in my life. So I have to guard against it because I think a lot of it is that I can really, in the West, move without God, without love. So when I ask this question, is this kind of love possible, I think there's a danger here for the West. There's a danger when we are merely kind. Because I think being kind and loving the way God loves, giving of yourselves, there's a depth that is missing when we do it in our own power. So we're talking about this culture of faith, um, hope, and love that, we've ta- that uh, Kevin's taken us through. And I want to look at where that really comes from in the context of looking at our motivation and is this love really possible. So faith, hope, and love, today's love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting with verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I was a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these, and now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So this is the most beautiful hymn, Paul's beautiful hymn to love, right? And he ends it with these beautiful words. But I want to look at how he starts this passage too, because I think this will help us. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, I know you guys were wondering, right, because I have this sitting up here. When is George going to get to that? Well, this is the time, okay? I know you've been waiting. The Greek word for gong, symbol, chokos, right? That's the Greek word, and I want to tell you literally what it means. So this word was often used in pagan rituals, and it would call the people, kind of whip them up into a frenzy, where you get this idea where they bang the gong, they bang the cymbal, and people would start really getting into the pagan worship. Paul uses it, and he contrasts it and compares it, because this cymbal, when you bang it, is devoid of music, and it's just kind of an annoying... Yeah? Totally just woke that guy up, yeah? Yeah. (laughs) That's it. It's just a loud noise. It's not eloquent. It's not anything. So the question we have to ask ourselves, are we motivated by the glory of God and have love for people, or are we doing things out of our own power? Because I think Paul is telling us, hear it well. If our gifts and our service are not motivated by love, it's nothing. It's worthless. So... Paul talks about this, verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. 
Who's the person he's talking about? This is a person that we would be writing biographies about, that we'd all be lifting up, that can do everything. But there's no love? Paul takes it further. He says, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Yeah. Love matters most, I think. The point is clear. Among the things that matter, it's love. It's our motivation. If we do that without all our Christian services, it doesn't matter. We have kind of this self-advertising type of love, yeah? We say, okay, I'll go and build an orphanage if you name it after me. Is there love in it? One more time. You'll indulge me? That's it. Love matters most. Question is how? We have to come back to the how. How can we make sure that we're really motivated by love? And there's a prayer that I learned in Mongolia in the midst of all the busyness and everything that we we're trying to do. When I think of everything, just a prayer that had to be part of everything. God, this is yours. Today's yours. The work is yours. My kids are yours. My marriage is yours. I'm yours. Check my motivation. What am I doing? How is still the question. I think that's a start, but I think there's something really beautiful here. John 13 is the beginning of this upper room discourse. And if you've never read John 13 all the way to John 17 in one sitting, I'd encourage you to do so. It's just Jesus talking. And it's really, really quite beautiful. Because Jesus comes back, and he's still talking in 15, chapter 15, 12. He says this, My command is this, Love one another as I have loved you. Sound familiar? Greater love has no one than this, they lay down his life for his friends. The command to love like Jesus, I think, is not just an example. It's not just the example from John 13. This is what I've done. Now you guys go do it. There's more. And Jesus comes in and he says, this is what's happening in John 15. Look what he says in 9:10. just a couple of verses before that. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. That's the key, remaining in Jesus. We get a real clear picture of what Jesus is talking about because this is the part where he talks about the vine and the branches. Same chapter, verse 1. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so it will be even more fruitful. You already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. This is the climax. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Jesus' command is not simply, it's not only exclusively the example. What he's doing here is he's giving the vital power to us and showing us how we can do it. Because it's the very love from the Father, when Jesus remains in him, that we have access to. So it's more than following the model, and that's the point of John 15. It's more than following the example. Let's go back to the commentary. 1 John 2, 8. Because John is expanding on this idea, and he's telling us how to tap in to what is available to us. John 2, 1 John 2, 8. Yet I'm writing to you a new command is truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That's the key. What's happening in John 13? Jesus is getting ready to lay down his life for all of us. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then 9 through 10 in 1 John says this, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. This is the how. This is what happens when Jesus tells us to love one another. It's the light of God. It's the glory of God that came down on the cross and the resurrection. At the end of the age, in Revelation will be the glory that fills up the entire earth. The light is already shining. And the commandment for us to love one another just as Jesus loved us is not mainly a command for pure imitation, but participation. We're not just to follow the model. We're not just to emulate it. We're to manifest Jesus' love. Loving with his love. So maybe our final definition for this morning is this. By living in God, remaining in Jesus, love is giving of yourself in humility for the good of others. This is the new command. Jesus is telling, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Yes. Not by copying my fruit, but connecting to my vine. You don't merely emulate. You don't merely copy, but your love for one another is an embodiment of mine. And there's power in that. I will be there. This is how people will know you're truly my disciples. If you remain in me, you can bear fruit. So the reason that we have love for each other, and it shows that we are truly disciples of Jesus, and it's possible to live this kind of life with the love of Christ, is that we are grafted into the vine. In AD 30, Seven weeks after Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected, 120 men, women, and 120 men and women gathered in Jerusalem and waited for the promised Holy Spirit. What happened at the end of that day? The movement that Jesus started numbered in the thousands. By A.D. 66, there were around 40,000 followers of the way, true believers of Jesus Christ. By the end of the first century, that number had grown to 100,000. And then we get to A.D. 300, and what has happened? There are about 6 million Christians. And Christianity, followers of the way, believers of Jesus Christ who were persecuted, who were put into Colosseum, who were tortured for their faith, 
now has become the official state religion. There's been no other movement in all of humankind, all of history, social, religious, or even military that has grown so quickly and with such vast implications. How? How did this happen? I believe that now, these days, are historic days in the life of the church. I believe that Jesus Christ is calling for us, among us. He's saying, just as I have loved you, Wyzetta, love one another. Go out, humble yourselves in lowly foot washing. Lay down your lives, your privileges for one another. Your brothers and sisters around the world, love them. Love the weakest, love the oldest, love the youngest, love, dis- lo- love the disabled, love the lonely ones, love those that hate you. How blessed is the church that loves like that. The truth is, people are going to betray you. They're going to lie about you. Some of them are going to try to get the better of you. It's true. Some of whom, who say that they love you, that your brother and sister will end up denying you. But, you know what? There's power in the love. I don't want you to miss the point of all this. Do you know how I experience Jesus' love the most? It's through people. It's through relationship. When I have the boldness and the humility to go out and serve and love like Jesus loved, Jesus always shows up, and I see Jesus in their, faith, in their faces. The other time Jesus shows up is when people serve me. And I really just need to thank Wyzetta because you've had our backs for you know, over a decade through some hard stuff, and you've shown up, and you've loved us, And I see Jesus in your faces. We are strong as a body so that we can love the world. We are stronger together and we lift and carry each other so that we can go out into what Paul called the regions beyond. We encourage each other. We love each other. We make each other stronger. We hold each other. And we go out into the regions beyond. This is my prayer. Jesus, this is yours. My marriage, my kids, my work, school, whatever. Every day, this is yours. First John goes on to say there's no fear in love. There is no fear. We're all standing together, one body, united for the glorious purpose. The church around the world, because First John talked about how the darkness is going to be destroyed and the light of our Lord Jesus Savior, which is already shining, will be shown throughout the world. And children from every tongue, tribe, and nation will bow and sing glory, glory, hallelujah, my God reigns. We are the bride. We stand united in his love for each other. And when we do that, and we do it with Jesus' love, not only will the world see that we're disciples, but the evil, the gates of hell, will not be able to stand against us. There's power. We must love one another in humility, in unity, and servants to one another, showing all the time Christ's love by remaining in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, dear Jesus, 
We love you. We thank you. We are yours. Pray that this next week we'll be able to serve you, show your love to people around us with boldness and humility. And then they will know where you're, we are your disciples. We are yours. We love you. Amen.